Hello and welcome back to Geeking with Destination Venus. Reggie here once again with another hour of geeky news, views and predictions because we are going to continue our look forward to what the world of geek has in store for it in 2022. We're going to look at a bit of space, a bit of science and of course comics, TV and maybe movies, maybe not movies, might not do movies, not sure. Anyway, we're going to start with... And we're starting with space because my first big prediction for this week in space is that in 2022, the James Webb Space Telescope is going to be a rip-roaring success. And I'm saying that because, as you know, I was nervous about the James Webb Space Telescope. There was so much, so much that could go wrong and something still might. We're not in a position yet where we can count our chickens, but the James Webb Space Telescope is now fully deployed. The heat shield, fully deployed, perfectly. The secondary mirror, fully deployed, perfectly. And now, finally, the primary mirror, fully deployed, perfectly. This is brilliant news. The reason it's brilliant is because if any of that had gone wrong, and it was very complicated, in order to fit the James Webb Space Telescope onto the top of the rocket it launched on, the Ariane 5, it had to be folded up in the most ridiculously complicated origami thing. And if anything had gone wrong with the unfolding, that would have been game over. Because there's no way to go out and fix this thing. It's too far away already. So what's next? Well, it's still not where it's going. It's it, Everything's deployed. It now has to align the two mirrors up so that they work as a telescope and it'll continue to do that over the next three months or so. Most importantly, in the next 10 days, it will actually get to where it's going, what's called the Lagrange point, which is a point of gravity, a particular gravitational point in orbit around the sun. Um, it's now way beyond the moon. It's, this is the reason we couldn't service this thing. Is because we don't have the technology to get that far with people anymore. But there is more good news about the James Webb Space Telescope. Now, none of this is completely set in stone, and some of it is purely speculative. But first bit of good news. The lifespan of this instrument might now be longer than we thought it was going to be. There are two limiting factors on the lifespan of the James Webb Space Telescope. One is the amount of cryonic coolant that the thing can carry, which is pretty much, you know, that's a finite deal. That It's got what it's got. When it runs out of coolant, it loses its ability to do what it does because the instruments that it's using need to be so cold that once there's no coolant left, that's basically it. They will no longer work. They will be too hot, even in deep space. The other limiting factor is the amount of propellant that is available because it will need to be able to adjust its position in orbit. And once it can't do that, it won't be able to point itself in the right direction to look at different things and so on and so on. And it therefore becomes just a thing that's floating around and you know is no longer able to be controlled. Now, we'll come back to cryonic. It looks as though the instrument will be using significantly less propellant getting from 
Earth to the Lagrange point than had been planned. Now that's because no rocket launch is perfect. And so when they're designing a mission and working out how much propellant to load on board, there's all, the engineers are always kind of thinking, well, you know, the rocket's going to put it in slightly the wrong place. There's going to need to be some adjustments made. That's going to use propellant. So we need to budget in for that and put in a little bit extra. Well, it looks as though, looking at the telemetry and the readings, that the Ariane 5 rocket that put the James Webb Space Telescope into space was pretty much spot on. It was a perfect orbital insertion. That hardly ever happens. NASA never manages it. And uh, it says a lot, actually, about the, the, the sheer brilliance of the Ariane rocket, that it was capable of doing that, meaning that this space telescope will, will be able to be operated for longer than was envisaged. That's great. Now, this is probably one of the last launches of an Ariane 5 rocket. It's due to be replaced by the Ariane 6. And the European Space Agency really does need to take a bit of a bow here. It's very, very clear that the Ariane 5 is currently the best heavy lift rocket currently available. And the Ariane 6 is more powerful and more accurate. So, seriously, well done, ESA. Proud to be a part of it. So that's that. And obviously, I have to predict that by the end of 2022, the James Webb Space Telescope will have dismayed huge discoveries that we can't even imagine at the moment. So, the James Webb Space Telescope, 30 years in the making, extraordinarily expensive, but in the end, worth it. So what else can we look forward to in space in 2022? Well, the DART mission from NASA is on its way to test out planetary defence systems, which sounds very sci-fi, very exciting, and, well, it is quite exciting, to, at least to me, uh, not particularly science fiction. DART is a proof of concept test, basically. What it's going to do is fly out to an asteroid and see if it can change the asteroid's orbit. Now, the reason it's doing that is there are a lot of big chunks of rock floating around in space. Some of them occasionally have orbits that cross the orbit of the Earth. Now, if the Earth and one of these big rocks happen to be crossing the same bit of space at the same time and collide, that would be bad. That's the kind of thing that destroyed the dinosaurs. And honestly, the problem with asteroids is they are really, really hard to see. All of the ones that NASA's planetary defense section has found so far have been, okay, we haven't found a near-Earth object that is likely to do any damage to the Earth so far. But we can't be sure such an object is not out there. And in any case, orbits do change. So it makes sense to have some kind of system for dealing with an asteroid should one be spotted. Um, or a comet. You might want to watch Don't Look Up on Netflix. It's not really about comets hitting the Earth. It's an allegory for climate change, I think. But, you know, the point stands. Because you see, as I say, these asteroids are very hard to see. So we might miss one until time is short. Why are they hard to see? Well, when I talk about big rocks, they're not that big. You know, they might be the size of a skyscraper or, you know, 
a couple of miles across. Now, in the grand scheme of the solar system, that's pretty tiny. They're also usually not terribly reflective, so they're not very bright in the sky. So they're just hard to see. And if you want the issue brought into fairly sharp focus, it is the case that a few years ago now, six or seven years ago, we spotted such a near-Earth object, a small asteroid, big enough to you know, take out, if it landed in a populated area at least, you know, it, you know if, if it had hit in Europe, it would have killed hundreds of thousands of people and, you know, put up enough stuff in the atmosphere to change the climate. You know, it would have been really bad. Wouldn't have been a an extinction level event, but it would have been a massive disaster. I think it's about a quarter of a mile across. It passed in between the orbits of the of the Earth and the Moon. So in between the Earth and the Moon. That's, in solar system terms, again, terrifyingly close. We did see it, but only after it had gone past. Yeah. Yeah, think about that for a second. So yeah, we might not have a huge amount of time to deal with an asteroid coming our way. And so it makes sense to know what we're going to do about it before there's a threat. So what do we do about it? What's DART going to test? Well, what DART's not going to do is blow anything up. Because blowing stuff up in space is a terrible idea. We've discussed this before. If you do that with an asteroid that's that's inbound, yeah, you might break it up into smaller pieces. But then what you've got, instead of one big thing that's about to hit you, you've got loads of smaller things that are about to hit you. And that's kind of the difference between getting hit by a rifle bullet or a shotgun blast. At close range, both are terminal. Doesn't really make a lot of difference. And yes, if you've seen the film Armageddon, that wouldn't work. Don't get me wrong, I quite like Armageddon. It's a big, dumb, fun movie. But none of the science in Armageddon would work. It's all complete nonsense. So, what do you do? Well, it's easy, really, in principle. All you do is nudge it. And that's what Dart's going to do with the asteroid it's on its way to. Dart is going to just push an asteroid a little bit, and we're going to see how far we can affect the orbit of the asteroid. If we can do that in practice, in theory, it's obvious. If in practice we can show we have the ability to move an asteroid out of our way, then as long as we keep that capability primed, and that's not that difficult to do, in the event of us spotting something coming towards us, we can deal with it. And I, for one, will be a little bit happier knowing that, yeah, we can definitely do that. Because at some point, we are going to get hit by something if we don't keep an eye out and have systems in place to deal with the situation when it arises. Case in point, a massive asteroid will actually do a bit of a flyby of Earth next week, travelling at about 47,000 miles an hour. This is a very big chunk of rock, about a kilometre across. Um, it's called... Now, I apologise for this because asteroids have boring names, but the asteroid in question is called 7482-1994-PC. Uh, and it's got an orbit around the sun of about one and a half Earth years. And it crosses our path about every 30 years or so. Now, this is one of the rocks that we know where it is, which means we know what its orbit is, which means we know it's not going to hit us. But it is going to get very, very close. On January the 18th, 
this year, in fact. Uh, it's going to come closer to the Earth than it will do in, in the next 200 years. So, again, we know it's going to miss us. We know that this particular rock is not going to be a serious problem for at least two centuries. So I'm finding that firmly as somebody else's problem. But it is going to come within 1.2 million miles of Earth. Now, that might sound like a big number, but again, in solar system terms, it's not. Okay, NASA classifies anything within 3 million miles of Earth as a near-Earth object. So this is pretty close. This stuff happens all the time. It's why we need to be ready. I mean, you might have missed it, but there was uh, what they call an airburst over uh, Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania uh, on New Year's Day. That was, a again, a meteor which exploded in the air. Had it hit the ground, it would have done quite a lot of damage. As it was, we got a spectacular fireworks display on New Year's Day in Pittsburgh. But you see, you know, there is a lot of this stuff out there. And knowing we've got a bit of a defence against it can only be good. So what else is happening in space this year? Well, if all things go according to plan, the first NASA mission with a crew-capable spacecraft to the moon will happen this year. There will be no crew aboard, but the plan is to send an Orion capsule using the space launch system around the moon this year. Uh, it's basically mimicking Apollo 8 but with much bigger equipment. Now, there are a couple of um, question marks over the, the, the Artemis 1 mission. Uh, the biggest one being the space launch system has never actually launched anything into space yet. But it's relatively tried and tested technology, so there shouldn't really be a problem as long as the rocket itself is ready. If you're unfamiliar with the space launch system, or SLS, it's based on space shuttle technology. Uh, if you imagine the space shuttle on the launch pad, uh, take the space shuttle off it, and what you had was a big orange tank with rocket boosters either size. Now, the space launch system is basically that, but bigger. A much bigger tank with the engines on the bottom of it instead of on the orbiter space shuttle thing, like a conventional rocket, and much bigger solid rocket boosters either side. And then, again, in the conventional rocket way, the payload, rather than sitting on the back of the fuel tank, like the space shuttle did, sits on top of the rocket. It's never flown, but, as I say, tried and tested technology, it worked on the space shuttle, there is no reason it would not work here. The Orion capsule has also never flown, but there's no reason to imagine that it won't work. So what we get is a human-rated spacecraft flying on autopilot around the moon, coming back. Now, that's the furthest NASA's spent, sent any human-capable equipment since 1972. Now, assuming that goes according to plan, that paves the way for basically the same mission, a round-the-moon-and-back-without-stopping mission, but with a human crew, maybe as early as 2023, probably 2024. Now, 2024 is when the Trump administration said NASA should be putting boots on the ground on the moon. That was never realistic. It's certainly not happening now. We know for certain that they will not have spacesuits suitable by then. But the spacesuits are nearly sorted. Uh, there's a lot of really good work being done on the spacesuits. I would suspect now that as long as the Artemis 1 mission goes okay, and that leads to a crewed mission in 2022 or 2023, I would imagine boots on the ground before 2030. 
So humans back on the moon before 2030. Um, I think that's a realistic timescale. If the Artemis 1 mission later this year goes pear-shaped, then that would put a serious dent in NASA's hopes of putting humans back on the moon anytime soon. They actually don't have another rocket to send a second test flight yet. So they'd have to wait for that to be built before they could do another test. And, you know, that would push the program back years. And if, if Artemis 1 goes wrong, we're not seeing American boots on the ground on the moon for at least the mid-2030s. So I will keep my fingers crossed because although human spaceflight is in many ways a ridiculous, expensive, risky thing to do, it's also just so inspiring. And although robotic missions are clearly safer in terms of risk to human life and also much cheaper because you don't have to worry about life support systems, there are always going to be things that machines just can't do. If we really want to learn about stuff, sooner or later, we've got to send people. And going to the moon is the obvious first step in getting people back into deep space. Honestly, I could probably go on for the whole show about what's coming in space in 2022. Those are my highlights. I think I'm going to leave the space section there just because we are nearly a third of the way through the show and we've not talked about anything else yet. So for space, for now, that'll do. Let's talk about comics. Specifically, let's talk about people who buy comics in Harrogate, because those people are making me happy. So, to explain why, I have to tell you a story. So, come with me back to the week between Christmas and New Year, which is always a weird week. I forget exactly which day it was, but I was having a reasonably busy day in the shop under the stairs at the Everyman Cinema, when in came a boy and his dad. Now, that is not unusual. That happens a lot. What made me notice this particular father and son was the boy's enthusiasm. I'm very bad at guesstimating ages. I I guess he was nine or ten, maybe. And he was so excited, he literally couldn't stand still. It transpired. They were on their way to see Spider-Man No Way Home. And they had to walk through the comic shop to get to the lift. And the lad saw that it was a shop with loads of comics in it. And he was really enthusiastic about that as well. And he went through the back issue bins, found a copy of Spider-Man and bought it. And in passing, his dad just you know, remarked, oh, you know, that's his first comic he's ever bought. And then off they went, leaving this cynical, jaded old comic seller with a genuine smile on his face. A couple of hours later, they were back. Again, this lad... Just his his joy and enthusiasm was was infectious. And he wanted to find some Miles Morales comics. Now, if you're not familiar with Spider-Man, Miles Morales is the younger Spider-Man. Very cool kid, wears a black and red suit, not a blue and red suit. And he's very popular with the young people. As it happened, I didn't have any copies of Miles Morales Spider-Man in the back issue section. So he came and asked me and I went through my files and found an issue of Mars Morales that was at the start of a story arc. And he was so happy and so enthusiastic. But 
The comic he bought earlier in the day had been £2, because that's how much I charge for most of the stuff that's in the back issue section. This was not in the back issue section yet, and it was a, a particular celebratory number. It was issue 25, and Marvel always makes those issues bigger and more expensive. This was a £4.50 book, and that seemed like a lot to me for a kid his age. And I don't normally do this. I am the very essence of curmudgeonliness. I really am. But there was something about this kid's enthusiasm. I gave him the book. I gave him the comic and said, you know, it's Christmas. You can have it for free. And he was so happy. Genuinely, I very nearly cried. And then they went on their way. And I thought, I wish I could do that more often. Because there is something about being able to give a kid their first comic. Okay, technically it was his second comic, but you know what I mean. And so I got to thinking about it. And I just decided, well, I can't just give stuff away. That's a terrible business model. But maybe there's something else I can do. And then, by complete coincidence, I was hanging around on Twitter like you do. And I saw a tweet from a comics shop. I think, I think it was Coffee and Comics in Belfast, but I can't actually find the tweet now, so I don't know who to credit for this. What I am going to say is that it wasn't my idea. But whichever comic shop it was, they tweeted out a picture of a tip jar. You know, like you go in bars and cafes and restaurants, there's a little jar on the counter for tips. Well, they had one. But instead of being like for beer money for the staff, it had on it a little notice that said, buy a kid a comic. Change left in this jar will be used to buy random comics for random kids. Something along those lines. And I thought, hang on a minute. That's a good idea. I'm nicking it. So fast forward a little bit in time to last Saturday when I finally got around to finding a jar. It's actually a bowl, but never mind. Sticking a sign on it, saying the same thing. Buy a kid a comic. Change left in this jar will be used to buy random kids their first comic. And then, because if you're going to do anything in retail these days, you do need to have a very strong social media game. I took a picture of the aforementioned jar and I put it on the social medias on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram with a little explanation telling the story I've just told. And saying, you know, I'd seen this idea somewhere else. We're going to give it a go. Now, I thought that was basically going to be it. And that as people bought their comics, maybe if they had 20p change, they'd chuck it in the jar. And that, you know, every so often there'd be a comics worth of money in there. And I would use it to buy the next kid that came in a comic. That's what I thought was going to happen. That's not what happened. What happened was... Completely unexpected and um, pretty dashed marvellous, if I'm honest. What actually happened was within about five minutes of me putting up those posts on the various social medias on Saturday afternoon, I'd had ooh, nearly a dozen people get in touch with me to say, what a great idea. Is there any way to donate to this online? Because I don't come to Harrogate very often. and. Initially, I thought, oh, that, no, because that'd be complicated. And if money's coming in, then how do I keep it separate? And uh, no, that's not going to. And then 
I remembered about buy me a coffee, which is something that uh, station boss Andy Backhouse introduced me to. And it's basically a website for micro donations where people can just chuck you a couple of quid. It's an online tip jar, if you like. Now, given that that's what I had physically on my counter, it seemed sensible. So I set up a buy me a coffee account. Um, if you're interested, it's www.buymeacoffee.com slash Desties. And I thought maybe a couple of people would chuck in a couple of quid. And then I realised that I'd set the thing to take donations in increments of £5. And I couldn't on Saturday figure out a way of changing that. And I thought, uh, well, no one's going to do that then, are they? Well, apparently, yes, because by the end of Saturday, I had £90 in that account. £90. There's even more in there now. And I have actually now figured out how to take donations in increments of £1. So people can now just chuck in a quid if they want. Now, you add to that the fact that I thought the tip jar on the counter might get the odd 20p, and it had the odd 20p. And do you know what? Those individual 20ps, they're all hugely appreciated. But it's also had people chucking £5 notes in there. I did not expect that. I've had customers who are paying by card ask me to round their bill up and put the difference in the jar. I mean, it's it's just... I'm, I'm amazed and blown away and humbled actually, by the generosity of the people who come in the shop and the people who know the shop online. It says a great deal about geeks in general and comic geeks in particular that this has taken off in the way it has. And people have been chucking money into a system to just introduce more people to comics. I can report that we have actually used funds to buy the first kid their first comic. It was a kid who came into the shop on Wednesday afternoon. He'd never bought a comic before. He wanted some recommendations. He said he quite liked the Hulk. As it happens, there is a new Hulk series that's just started. The first two issues are out. So the Buy a Kid a Comic Fund bought him issue one and he bought himself issue two. So I'd like to thank everybody who's donated so far and um, let you know that your money's going to a good cause and is now actually working. I also really want to stress that I didn't do this. Putting a tip jar on the counter was not my idea. I stole that. Putting the buy me a coffee thing online was not really my idea. Somebody asked me if it could be done and I figured out a way to do it. And the money raised, yeah, some of that's mine. I've put some money in. Of course I have. Uh, but it's mostly not me. It's mostly you lot. So just sit back. And let yourselves have a little rosy glow of satisfaction, fellow geeks. Because it turns out, geeks are good people. Of course, having so much more money in the fund already than I thought I'd ever have does mean that we can do something more imaginative with the idea now. My initial thought was that we'd have, you know, a few quid. And that might buy the odd kid, the odd back issue, maybe the odd issue off the rack. But, you know, it wasn't never going to be a big thing. Suddenly, there's a budget that I can carefully work out how to spend. I want to be true to the original idea. I don't want to be using this money to buy comics and graphic novels for school libraries. That's something that I do anyway, and something that I support and believe in. But this is not for that. This is about individuals. This is about setting people off on a path that 
you know, they might be following for the rest of their lives. I certainly still on that path. But it means I can actually now buy comics specifically for this purpose. So I'm shouting out to you guys. Do you have any recommendations? I have some ideas about comics that I can buy for this. I'd quite like, if I can, to find independently produced comics. And I'm kind of sad that Thought Bubble isn't coming up until November, because I could very easily use this money to run around Thought Bubble buying kid-friendly comics from all manner of people. But I can't do that now. So if you have a favourite comic that you enjoy, that you think kids would enjoy, tell me what it is. And I will see about building up a little library of stuff that I can just give away. I can't tell you what a privilege it is to be able to do this. So anyway, that's my heartwarming little comics story for the time being. What can we look forward to in comics in 2022? And You know, I'll be honest. There's actually not that much that's been announced that I'm absolutely screechingly excited for. Vault Comics, my favourite indie publisher, I think I can probably say. It's them or Aftershock, and, you know, it depends which comics are out this week. Vault Comics have made some interesting-looking teaser announcements, but nothing that concrete. Um, so, you know, I'm sure there's going to be exciting things coming from all the publishers, but nothing that's been announced so far is setting me alight, apart from one particular announcement that was made this week. John Romita Jr. is coming back to Spider-Man. Now, that might not mean anything to you if you are not a comics geek. And in fact, if you if you are a comics geek, if you're a young comics geek, that still might not mean that much to you. But John Romita Jr., the son of John Romita, is one of the best loved comics artists. He's been around forever. He's worked with everybody. Um, he's worked with Frank Miller, Jeff Johns, Brian Michael Bendis, uh, Tom King. Uh, just he's a rock star. Mostly he's been at DC for the last several years. Um, but he's done a lot of stuff at Marvel as well. Most notably, um, he did a lot of work with Dan Slott on Amazing Spider-Man. Um, and Dan Slott is the guy who... Has, Dan Slott basically has written every, more issues of Spider-Man than literally anybody else. And um, John Romita Jr. worked with him. He's a brilliant, brilliant artist. Um, now, you may not know this, if again, if you're not into Spider-Man, but currently... In the comics, Peter Parker is not Spider-Man. Ben Riley, who is a clone of Peter Parker, is currently Spider-Man. Um, I'm not a big fan of that, to be honest. Um, there's a whole thing about Ben Riley and the clone saga that happened in the 90s, which turned so many people off Spider-Man comics. I don't know why they brought the whole thing back. It's got a really strong creative team. It actually, it's actually very well written. I'm not a fan. Sorry, just not. But from April, there'll be a new creative team and I presume a new start. Uh, I presume that bringing John Romita Jr. in is part of the 60th anniversary celebrations for The Amazing Spider-Man. Um, and I can't imagine that they're going to have Ben Riley be Spider-Man all the way through 2022. That doesn't make sense to me. So I'm assuming, although this hasn't been announced, that either in April or sometime very soon after April, 
Peter Parker will take on the mantle of Spider-Man again. Uh, John Romita Jr. will be joined by a big name writer. And we'll get a real celebration of good old fashioned Spidey. That's something I'm really hoping for. Might even get me buying Spider-Man comics again because I haven't bought a Peter Parker Spider-Man comic for a long time. Mars Morales, yes. Peter Parker, less so. Now, this is also the point where I would probably do uh, some recommendations for comics of the week. But I can't. And the reason I can't is because although my delivery of the new comics for the week is supposed to arrive before lunchtime on a Tuesday, and I'm recording this at lunchtime on a Thursday, I still don't have my delivery. Hopefully, by the time you're listening to this, I will, because if I haven't, I'm going to be furious. But it does mean I don't have any comics I can recommend for this week. I do, however, have some I can recommend for last week. So we'll do that instead, shall we? So my first comic of last week is Electra Black, White and Blood, issue one. Now, this is a gimmick kind of thing that started with Batman Black and White back in the 90s and has kind of taken off with DC and Marvel, actually. Um, and the idea is that you have a character that's associated with a colour and you do a, a series of stories that only use those colours. So we had um, Superman Red and Blue, for example, uh, uh, last year, which only used the colours red and blue to tell Superman stories. We had um, Wonder Woman Black and Gold, which only used black and, well, if we're honest, yellow, to tell Wonder Woman stories, again, in a, a limited series last year. Electra Black, White and Red uses only black and white with red highlights. Because Electra, first of all, as a character, her costume is red. Also, she's an assassin, very much associated with blood. And what we've got is an anthology of very short stories featuring Electra. And do you know what? They're brilliant. Short stories are something that comics do do well. A short story in a comic is maybe five or six pages, and you can tell a complete story in that space if you do it well. If you like the character of Electra then this is a a must-read book. As with all anthologies, not every story is going to suit everybody. I don't actually like the first story in the book. It's a vampire story, and it doesn't make sense to me. Um, but the other stories in issue one are absolutely cracking, uh, examining themes of death and courage and loyalty and... All that good stuff that Electra is part of. Great action as well. And as I say, just brilliant storytelling. And then there's Batman One Dark Knight. Now, this actually has been out for a while, but we've only just got our stocks in uh, this week. In fact, um, it's one of the very few things that have been delivered to me this week. In fact, um, and it's it's brilliant. It's long anticipated. It's written and drawn by a guy called Jock who is best known as an artist, uh, done a lot of work on Judge Dredd, uh, started on 2000 AD many, many years ago. He's got a very dramatic, very distinctive art style, and I cannot tell you how much I love his work. It's a DC black label book, which means it's outside of con continuity and intended for a more adult audience. And none the worse for that, Batman really works in that kind of format. Slightly annoyingly, it's in the oversized uh, 
black label format, which means it's about the same size as a British comic would be, which is fine and good and great. And it means you can see the art much better uh, and you can fit more art onto a page, which is, again, fine and good and great. But it's really flipping annoying if you have to put it with your regular comics collection because it's the wrong size and it doesn't fit. And I wish they wouldn't do it. And I know that shouldn't make a difference, but I'm a geek and it's the kind of thing that I get obsessive about. So see me. The story itself is interesting. Basically, it's a race. What we've got as a setup is a supervillain who has the power to cause blackouts is being transferred from Arkham Asylum on one side of Gotham City to Blackgate Prison on the other. The route takes them through the territory of several gangs. Can they get this prisoner across Gotham without incident? It's not a spoiler if I tell you that the answer to that question is no. There are some other MacGuffins in the plot which explain that, you know, there's also a time limit on this. If we don't get him from Arkham to Blackgate within a certain amount of time, bad things will happen. And, you know, all that kind of thing, just to rack up the tension a little bit more. It's a brilliantly paced story. Uh, I don't think I've ever read anything that Jock's written before, but um, he's good. Got to say, he's good. And of course, as an artist, he's a brilliant visual storyteller. So the, the art is doing most of the narrative work in this story, which, again, in comics, I think is a good thing. It's one of the things that comics can do that almost no other medium can. Even film struggles to tell stories with pictures the way that comics can. And it's nice to see somebody using the uniqueness of comics to its best advantage. So highly recommended. It's part one of, I think, four. And I just can't recommend it highly enough. Even if you're not somebody who considers themselves to be a Batman fan, if you like a good action story, then this is it. And if you like a story where the stakes are high and the tension is high, this is it. Now, I really wish the delivery had arrived because there is some stuff in this week's delivery that I'm very, very much looking forward to. But of course, because I haven't got it yet, I haven't actually read it. So I can't, in good faith, recommend any of it. But um, there are a couple of comics that are getting first issues this week. The first, just to go back to Electra, is Daredevil Woman Without Fear, which is a three-part series featuring Electra as Daredevil. Obviously, if you're not familiar with the character, Electra has been a Daredevil villain stroke love interest stroke partner um, for a long time. And in the recent Daredevil comics, Matt Murdock went to jail and Electra took over as Daredevil for a while. Um, she's now getting a three-issue miniseries, I think, to sort of close out that storyline. Um, it looks very striking. It's very distinctive art by um, an artist called uh, Raphael de la Tour. And it's written by Chip Zarsky, who is uh, a fantastic Daredevil writer. He's he's the, the, the writer behind the current run of Daredevil. Um, and we've got Electra having taken a vow not to kill. Uh, but now somebody is going to put themselves directly in her way. And the consequences of that are going to be serious. So I was looking forward to that. And I, I really hope that by the time you listen to this, I'll have read it. But also out 
this week is um, a comic called We Ride Titans. It's from Vault Comics, who, as I said earlier, one of my favourite, if not my favourite, indie comics publisher. And it's a story about kaiju, giant big monsters. And there aren't enough comics about giant big monsters. This is following um, a central character called Kit Hobbs. Uh, her family has been responsible for piloting the Titan that protects the city of New Hyperion from these monsters. And it's been her family thing between for, for generations. But now her family is spiralling out of control. And there's a whole bunch of monsters heading for the city. So she's got some serious work to do. I love stories about giant monsters. I'm a sucker for Godzilla and King Kong and all of that stuff. And I've never understood why there aren't more sort of kaiju-based comics, because there aren't very many. Uh, this looks just the business. Uh, written by Tres Dean, who, whose work I don't think I'm familiar with, uh, and illustrated by Sebastian Pires, who I know I'm not familiar with. But just looking at some of the sample artwork that's out there and just the cover of issue one, it looks the business. So I was very much looking forward to that as well. I hope it's as good as I think it's going to be. Uh, if it is, um, it will probably end up being one of our picks of the week. Uh, I'll probably give you a proper review of it next week. Uh, assuming, of course, the wretched thing ever arrives. But it's time to move on and talk about a little bit of telly. And I'm really sorry, but I'm going to talk about Disney Plus stuff again. And yeah, I know, I promise you, Disney Plus are not paying me. But Disney Plus, if you're listening, if you want to pay me to give positive reviews of your stuff, I'm happy to, because yeah, I'll take your money, Disney. But they're not paying me at the moment. I'm at the moment plugging this stuff because I just think it's brilliant. If you saw the first episode of The Book of Boba Fett, you might have been thinking, oh my word, this is slow. And honestly, you'd have been right. Now, personally, I don't mind that. I quite like a slow burn. Things have picked up considerably in episode two. I haven't seen episode three yet, but things have picked up considerably in episode two last week. Um, first of all, the pace picked up a little bit. Still not the fastest thing around. But we're also learning more about Fett's past, which we've never known anything about before. Now, I'll be honest. I've never needed to know anything about Boba Fett's past in the past. It's not something that's kept me awake at night, but it is nice to get some rounding of the character. And there was one aspect of the Book of Boba Fett, episode two, that I really do want to talk about because it's important, I think. And be advised, the boring preachy part is going to rear its head in this little segment. So the Mandalorian was a space western, if you like, but it was much more deeply rooted in samurai stories, really, than westerns, I would have said. Whereas the Book of Boba Fett really does have a much more space western feel to it. Now, one of the things that has been a trope in westerns for ever, really, is the idea of the Indian. And the fact that the Indian is this faceless threat that has to be fought. Now, that's problematic in so many ways. 
I'm not going to go into it. Obviously, the, the, the just inherent racism of having all Indians be bad guys is profound and obvious, and I really don't need to go into it here. It's something that more modern Westerns have addressed a little bit, but, you know, it is still a thing. Now, why am I telling you this? In Star Wars, the characters that have been the allegory for the role of the Indian in Westerns were the Sand People, the Tusken Raiders, largely treated by both the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy as mindless, disposable savages, in the way most Western movies made in the 50s and 60s, and even into the 70s, portrayed the Indian, or the Native American as we should call them. Episode 2 of The Book of Boba Fett starts to address that in the Star Wars universe by making a group of Tusken Raiders into relatable characters that you are invested in. As a viewer, I now care what happens to this band of Tusken Raiders that Boba Fett has joined. And it's done with a sense that, yes, Boba Fett is influencing this group of Tuscans, but also they are influencing him. There is an, a change, an exchange of ideas. It's clear that Boba Fett has respect for these people. Now, why am I linking this to Indians in Western films? Well, as I say, that's the role the Tuscans have always filled in Star, the Star Wars universe. And there's a few things that, are, that come up in the Book of Boba Fett that link to real-world issues. For example, um, Fett at one point tells somebody that the Tuscans lay ancestral claim to the knoll of the Dune Sea because the Tuscans are the indigenous people of Tatooine. That is a way of starting a conversation about the land rights of indigenous peoples in a not heavy-handed, Star Wars-y kind of way. And I like it when my science fiction does that. It is political. It is making a political point, but only if you choose to observe it. It's not banging you on the head and saying, look at us talking about indigenous rights. It's not doing that. It's something that comes up in the course of the story. And Whilst I think it's very important that our fiction and our stories address contemporary issues like this, I also think it's important to do it in a way that doesn't beat you over the head and doesn't feel forced and obvious. Um, as an example of this same thing done badly, uh, season 12 of Doctor Who, which got tremendously preachy about we must look after the environment and all of that. There were whole speeches basically saying, smarten your ideas up, folks. And it was heavy handed and it was lame and it it was bad writing. Now, I'm easy for Doctor Who. I didn't mind, but I know a lot of people did. And it isn't a way of convincing people. Whereas the way this has been done in the book of Boba Fett, it may start some trains of thought about, well, the Tuscans are right. And some people might start to draw parallels with things that are going on with the indigenous peoples of their own countries. And that is how you change minds. So there's that. That's not the only thing that got me excited in episode two of the Book of Boba Fett, though. There was also an appearance of a character who's never appeared on screen before. Been around in the Star Wars comics, 
for quite a long time, but not appeared in a screen, a live action thing. And that is a Wookiee called Black Kranstan, whose name, as far as I'm aware, has not been used. It might have been used in episode three, which aired as I'm recording this yesterday, but I haven't had a chance to see that yet, as I say. Um, he's a big black-furred Wookiee with sort of grey in his, his facial hair, and he is a bounty hunter and all-round bad dude. Created by the writer Kieran Gillen and the artist Salvador La Roca in the Darth Vader comic a few years ago, and subsequently went on to be a major feature in a comic called Dr. Aphra, uh, which follows the adventures of a rogue archaeologist stroke pirate stroke smuggler uh, called Dr. Aphra, who is basically a female version of what Han Solo would have been had he not fallen in with the right people. Uh, she's not a villain. Uh, she is a rogue. Uh, she will work for whichever side is paying, and she will absolutely look after her skin and only her skin. And um, Black Krastan was was travelling with her for a while. Interesting that they started to do this. It tells me a couple of things. First of all, Lucasfilm regard Star Wars as very much a whole thing. So if it happens in the comics, then it's acknowledged in the live action stuff. If it happens in the live action stuff, it's acknowledged in the comics and, and the novels and all of that, all links together. So there's that. Um, it also maybe hints, maybe we'll get a live action Dr. Aphra. And as a fan of that character, I am very much here for that. I, yeah, I would love to see a live action Dr. Aphra. It also, though, brings us back to something that really gets on my nerves with Disney. And Disney, if you're listening, I won't do paid sponsorship for you unless you sort this out, because it's bad and it needs sorting. Because although I know that Black Karastan was created by Gillen and LaRocca, how many other people do? I know because I'm a comics geek. Most people aren't. This is exactly the same issue that I had with using David Age's work as the basis for the opening credits for Hawkeye. I completely get that ultimately the intellectual property is owned by Disney. That is fine. I don't think that just because they're using a character created by Gillen and LaRocca, that Gillen and LaRocca necessarily should be paid for that. Um, they created it as a work-for-hire thing. Whatever it says in their contract is whatever they should get in terms of financial re remuneration. Uh, we're far enough down creator rights now that if a creator signs away those rights, they know what they're doing. And I have no issue with that. But creator rights are not just about money. They're also about recognition, which is why there should have been an on-screen credit. There should be an on-screen credit for all the people who create these characters. You can't just say, based upon Star Wars by George Lucas. Because, honestly, most of the characters in the Star Wars universe, nowadays, the ones that we're using, they were not created by George Lucas. Star Wars was, and George Lucas should always be acknowledged for that. But if we're going to introduce new characters, tell us who created them. Particularly in movies and streaming services where it really doesn't matter how long the credit sequence is. Just drop in. Black Grandstand the Wookiee, created by Gillen and LaRocca. That's all you got to do. It's not rocket science. It's not hard. But it gives the creators the recognition that I believe they deserve. And it also gives us, the geeks, the opportunity to know who did what. Because we like that sort of stuff. And it would cost 
Disney, or well, Lucasfilm in this case, but let's be honest, Disney, it would cost them nothing. Literally nothing. Oh, and incidentally, I've almost certainly been mispronouncing the Wookiee's name for the last several times I've said it. Don't at me. It's just, I'm really bad at names. I don't get human names right. I've got no chance with Wookiees. So just, that is what it is. So that's that. There is just one more thing I want to talk about in terms of TV that's coming up in 2022, because it's something that I've been looking forward to it since it was announced. I've wanted it for knocking on 30 years, and I never thought we'd get it. And that is the live action Sandman series coming to Netflix this very year. I don't think we've got a date for it yet. Certainly I couldn't find one on Netflix's site, Uh, but it is definitely in 2022 and I am beyond excited. If you're unfamiliar with the Sandman, basically it is regarded by many as one of the best comic series ever written. It was written by Neil Gaiman and illustrated by a variety of artists in the 90s. And it tells the story of Green, Morpheus, the not god of sleep, but the personification of sleep. A very serious goth looking lad with big, big hair and long flowing black robes. He was part of a family called the Endless. Each member of the family represented a different aspect of human personality. The whole family was destiny, death, destruction, dream, desire, despair and delirium. Delirium used to be called delight, but then, you know, human history happened. Anyway, a long and beautifully written series full of wonder and magic and folklore. And they've been trying to bring it to the screen since 1991. I'm actually quite glad it took them this long, because had they done it in the 90s, Neil Gaiman wasn't a big enough name to have been involved. And honestly, I don't think I'd have much of an interest in a Sandman project that Gaiman wasn't attached to. Uh, But now, obviously, Neil Gaiman is Neil Gaiman. So if you're going to do a a, a production of one of his creations, of course, you're going to get him involved if you possibly can. And Neil Gaiman cares very deeply about the Sandman universe. So although he does not own it because he, he created it for DC, which means it's owned by Warners, He's very attached to it and he will steer it as much as he can. And obviously Warners have the sense to let him do that now. So I have such high hopes for this. It's not been uncontroversial. Um, we've reported before that you know some of the characters have been gender swapped. Some of the characters have been race swapped between the comic and the show. And some people are upset about that. I would just point out that... The Endless aren't humans. They're physical manifestations of ideas. And so, honestly, ideas can change. That's really not a problem. I think that works in world. I mean, at the very least, in the comics, although I don't think the language existed at the time, the character of Desire would be non-binary because they are the embodiment of all kinds of desire, including sexual desire, for all people, which means they have to be objects of desire for people of all genders and none, which means desire has to be different things to different people. That's just how the character works. So it was already there in the comics. 
know that language wasn't being used in 1993 because nobody was using that language in 1993. But the idea was there. So I don't have a problem with any of that. My only issue is, will the performances be good? Will the stories be good? And will they deviate too far from the comics? Because you've got to deviate from the comics a little bit. There's no point just doing a frame by frame, shot for shot remake of the comics on the screen. If I wanted that, I'd go and read the comics again, which I'm probably going to do anyway. So there's got to be something new that a new version of it is bringing. I'm fascinated to see what that new thing is going to be. As with all things, there is the possibility that I won't like it. And I'll be sad if that's the case. But, you know, I'll live with it. Because ultimately, I'll always have the comics. No one's taking those away from me. And, you know, the Sandman series, the Sandman comics, they mean a lot to me. Uh, they hit me at a particular time in my life, just as I was going to university. Uh, I think Sandman 1 came out while I was still in the sixth form, and I didn't buy it, and I've regretted that ever since. But, you know, so they they link me back to a particular time in my life, which was a particularly good time in my life. And, you know, so I have this fondness for them. And if the show's not good, I'll just stick with the comics. But no game is attached. The writers involved look good. The cast is a strong cast. I, I don't see how the, the groundwork could have been laid any better. So very, very positive feelings for um, Sandman on Netflix in 2022. And hey, look, I just recommended something that's not on Disney+. Plus. Yay me. Of course, it is on Netflix, which is still a paid-for streaming service. And I'm, I'm aware that that is problematic. I, I wish there was more good geeky stuff on mainstream telly. If anyone can think of any, please let me know. Because if there's any really good geeky content on free-to-air TV, I am currently missing it. Unless it's, you know, reruns of Star Trek and whatnot. One final thing on TV, I will say, although I can't see it because I don't have HBO Max because I live in the UK, The Peacemaker Show. I've seen the opening credits and if the show itself is anything like that, it's brilliantly bonkers. Heaven knows if, when or where. That will show up available for UK viewing. But um, hey, there you go. Oh, and I've just remembered, there is, of course, Superman and Lois on BBC One, which I'm kind of enjoying. It's it's not my favourite thing in the world, but it is on a free-to-air service. So there is at least that. Oh, and of course, you can also check out the Harley Quinn cartoon on All Four, which is a free-to-air streaming service. I don't think it's on actual broadcast television at the moment, but it is on All Four. So you can watch that for free too. So there's that. Yeah, maybe we're doing better than I thought. But as Andrew Marvell once notably noted, time's winged chariot draws ever near and we are out of time. All that remains is to note that Geeking with Destination Venus is a copyright feature from Venus Rising Media, engineered by me in what is actually today, genuinely Sonny Harrigan. So we will be back next week. I'm genuinely not sure what content we'll have next week. I have got some interviews and stuff lined up. Whether I'll actually have got them done and edited by then is anybody's guess. But I have got some tentatively really amazing stuff lined up for 2022. So you are going to want to stick around for it. So we'll see you soon. But until we do, be kind to yourself. Be kind to everybody else. Stay safe. Stay geeky. Until the next time, we all meet around our devices to get together and go geeking. Ta-ra! <laughs>